0: Now, let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, good morning, everyone. If you would, please grab your Bibles and open them up to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 30 today. Uh, For those of you new with us this morning and visiting us, we are going through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse, and our prayer is that you would experience God day by day as we go through the Word of God. Um, Let me review before we get to today's text. Two weeks ago, we witnessed the crescendo of Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles. The crescendo was this all-you-can-eat fish-and-chips buffet in the middle of a desert on a three-day camping trip. Last week, we saw the results of that. The, of that miracle, meaning that the Gentiles they were very excited about that, uh, but the Jews were not specifically the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. as soon as Jesus and the twelve disciples returned from performing that miracle, the Pharisees they attacked Jesus. Think of a, a military formation like these guys are going to war that's how they approached Jesus. And some of the key points from last week, number one, when we test God, it shows our lack of faith in God. When we test God, it shows our lack of faith in God. So make no doubt about it, the Pharisees were testing Jesus. They were tempting him to fail, just like Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness to fail. We also talked about how Putting God to the test is dangerous, and those that truly know God, we don't demand anything because He's already given us everything. God the Father has given us everything in and through Jesus Christ, His Son. We discussed how uh, faith, faith that depends on proof, it's not faith, that's doubt, we, we mentioned how our own personal beliefs are dangerous, so we better make sure that our own personal beliefs, that our faith, line up with what is uh, talked about and discussed and taught in Scripture. We explained how Jesus can't do anything in your life until you believe. The scripture repeatedly says to repent and believe that Jesus is God and that He alone is the one who will save you from your sins. We discussed how daily provisions are minor issues, but really, the major issue in our lives is always the condition of our heart. These miracles of healing, these miracles of provision, they're just so easy for Jesus to perform. But to turn a sinner into a saint, that costs God his very life. That's crazy to to ponder that. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him is not going to perish. And then lastly, Jesus gave the 12 a spiritual test last week. The 12 thought that Jesus was talking about physical bread. Remember Peter? He was like, leaven? Who's got a sandwich? I want a fish sandwich. Now, Jesus was warning them of the leaven, the, the false teachings of the Pharisees. So evidently, or eventually, the the 12 got the correct answers from that test last week, but they they ultimately failed the test. So what happens when you fail a test? You got to do it over. You guys are looking at me like you've never failed a test before. Like I'm the only one that's ever failed a test up here. (laughs) No, you got to take it over, right? Right? So not only do the twelve need to take this test over, but this week it is final exam week. Remember those finals week? That's where we are with the twelve. Jesus has been—it's almost probably around two years now that Jesus has been with the disciples, and uh, so that's where we are today in our verse by verse study of the Gospel of Mark. The Holy Spirit of Almighty God, he is going to continue now this theme of spiritual blindness and spiritual dullness. And we're going to meet a man who is physically blind, and then we're also going to witness Jesus do something that he's never done before. He's going to heal this man in stages. This is a really a vital lesson for us today because this blind man's physical healing is sandwiched between two examples of spiritual blindness. Today's scripture passage is known as the watershed moment for the 12 disciples. It reveals one of the biggest aha moments that they will ever have regarding God's revelation and his illumination. After today's conversation with Jesus, things become much more spiritually clear for the 12, and yet at the very same time, with this new clarity, comes a disturbing awareness of reality. So they go from joy and excitement to fear and confusion in a matter of moments. So why is that? Well, let's find out. If you would, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 8, verse 22, Jesus and the twelve, they came to Bethsaida. And the crowd brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. And spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, Well, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes, and the man looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, Well, John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But you, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You? Are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. And these are the very words of Almighty God. Please pray with me. Father, the psalmist writes, That I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. So, Father, we want to praise you and thank you this morning for your goodness and for our future hope to live in the land of the living. We pray, Lord God, that you would remove the scales from our eyes as you reveal your word to us and give us a a miracle, really, of perception. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Please be seated. Thank you. Take a deeper look here at verse 22. Jesus and the twelve, they came to Bethsaida... And the crowd brought a blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch him. So Bethsaida, this is a fishing village. It's not too far from Capernaum. It's the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee here. Uh, This is the place where Jesus fed the 20,000 Jews. It's also the hometown of the brothers Peter and Andrew, along with Philip. Make a note here that Jesus is not a fan of Bethsaida. We know why. Scripture tells us why in Luke chapter 10, verse 13. Jesus says, "'Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But it's going to be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you.'" So why is God's judgment more severe for Bethsaida? Well, because the people of Bethsaida, they are hard-hearted. They refuse to believe in Jesus and his gospel message. I mean, think about it. The people of Bethsaida, they saw these miracles, but they did not repent. They did not believe. The miracles did not change their mind. The feeding of the 5,000, the healing of a blind man today, and then also Jesus walking on the water. That all happened in Bethsaida. So listen to what Jesus is saying here. He says, because of their unbelief, the final judgment on the Gentiles of Tyre and Sidon, that's going to be less severe than the judgment that will fall on the Jews of Bethsaida. Wow. Verse 22. So the crowd, they brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch him. So notice here that there's some friends, they bring a blind man to Jesus, and not only do they bring him to Jesus, but now they're telling Jesus how to heal him. They're telling Jesus what to do. So is it possible that they are putting more trust in Jesus' touch than in Jesus himself? Key point number one for us today, do I trust in Jesus, or do I trust in what Jesus does for me? Do I trust in Jesus, or am I trusting in what Jesus is doing for me? In other words, am I wanting the gift, but not the giver? Now, have you noticed that this sense of touch, this laying on of hands, is a theme throughout the Gospel of Mark? Have you guys seen that? Remember the woman with the hemorrhage? She said, you know, if I can just touch his clothes, I'm going to be healed. So people want to touch Jesus, but more importantly, Jesus also wants to touch them. And this is new. This is new. We don't really see this in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see touch used in in three primary ways. Uh, number one, the dedication of sacrifices to God. Number two, the commissioning of Levites to the office of priesthood. And number three, as a means of blessing. We really don't see the laying on of hands and healing people in the Old Testament. There is one, there is one narrative that's, that's somewhat close. Let me show this to you because it's, it's um, I was going to say it's funny. It's not really funny, but in a way it is. Let me just show it to you. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 11. Naaman, so Naaman is a Syrian commander. He got angry. And he left, he sa- and he said this, he said, I was telling myself, well, he will surely come out, he's going to stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and then he's going to wave his hand over the place and cure my skin disease. So Naaman got angry at the prophet Elisha. And basically, uh, he was telling, Naaman was telling Elisha how to heal him. Elisha literally told him to go jump in the lake or in the river. That's how he had to go get healed. So this sense of touch is uh, is is new for the New Testament. And the reason for that is is Jesus makes all things new. Verse 23, Jesus took the blind man by the hand and he brought him out of the village. So Jesus does touch him, but not exactly the way his friends want. Kind of sounds similar to Naaman, doesn't it? Jesus takes him by the hand. The man's friends, they were watching this. They were probably expecting something extraordinary to happen at that moment, but nothing happened. And the reason nothing happened is because Jesus, he doesn't duplicate his miracles. They're not a magic trick. There is no formula here. There is only faith. So can't you picture this man's friends kind of standing back and being disappointed? Oh, all this time—it's just wasted. See, this was not in their plans. They plan to get their friend healed by the touch of Jesus, but Jesus doesn't just touch this man. He holds on to his hand, and he leads them, leads him away from the crowd. This is the first time that we see this in the Gospel of Mark. Holding another man's hand, another person's hand, is a very personal thing, especially holding on. To someone's hand for an extended period of time, so this act of touch really is a beautiful picture of Jesus's compassion. This sense of touch to a blind man is very loving, probably more so than the the sense of sound. So just picture Jesus firmly holding this man's hand and guiding him wherever he's taking him. Step up here, be careful. There's a rock. There's a rock right here. Good. All right, we're going to move to the left a little bit. Good, keep going. Okay, we're gonna, there's some loose gravel up here, and Jesus is leading and guiding, and he's directing him the whole time. So key point number two, Jesus led this man with his touch and his words so that he would not stumble. Jesus led this man with his touch and with his words so that he's not going to stumble. The same thing happens to us through the Word of God. The psalmist writes that the Word of God is a, a light, it's a lamp to our feet. So the question becomes, now wait a second, why did Jesus lead this blind man out of the village? Because most of the miracles in the Gospel of Mark, they were done in public. Was it to avoid all the excitement of the crowd? Possibly. Possibly. There seems to be another reason, though, and that is we don't really have any idea about this man's faith. So Jesus wanted to be in a very quiet place where he could have this man's full attention. Jesus cares much more about this man's spiritual life than his physical sight. So this man is not only physically blind, but he's also spiritually dull. And that's the bigger problem. So verse 23, Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? So the picture here is that Jesus spat directly on the man's eyes. In the first century, saliva, they believed saliva had healing properties. Back in Mark chapter 7, we saw Jesus spit on his fingers to communicate to the deaf man that he was getting ready to, to heal him. Now... Spitting directly on someone's eyes is a bit bizarre, needless to say. And if that wasn't odd enough, Jesus asked a question. He asked him if he could see anything. Now, why would Jesus ask that question? Why would he ask him that? Because in all the other miracles, people were healed instantly, right? So did Jesus, did he run out of his divine power? Were the Pharisees correct in their assessment of Jesus? Is he a fake? Is he a fraud? Did did something go wrong with this magic show? No. So, you know, when we ask the wrong question, we're always going to get the wrong answer. So let's ask some better questions here. Is Jesus restricted to how he's healed people in the past? Does Jesus have the freedom to heal people the way that he chooses? And I think the best question is, why did Jesus choose to partially restore the sight of this man? He chose to do that, and there's a reason why. Verse 24 tells us why. So this man, he looks up and he said, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So a few things to note here. First, this man knows what people look like. He knows what trees look like. So what's that tell us? He wasn't, right, he wasn't born blind. He somehow lost his sight. And then secondly, who are the people who look like trees? The 12 disciples. They're watching this whole thing. They're watching this miracle happen. So back to our question, why did Jesus choose to partially restore the sight of this man? Well, we just came from last week. Jesus is teaching the 12 the difference between spiritual blindness and spiritual dullness. And Jesus is now performing this miracle in stages to further teach the 12. Last week, the 12 said they understood the teaching of the leaven of the Pharisees. They said they did, but they really didn't understand what was going on. So they failed the test at first. They knew the answers here, but they didn't comprehend it. In verse 18, Jesus asked them, He said, Do you guys have eyes? But you can't see. So by performing today's miracle in stages, Jesus is giving the 12 a visible picture of their spiritual dullness. It's at this moment that the blind man has partial physical sight, just as the 12 have partial spiritual sight. This man sees people, but they look like trees, and that's not good. That's an awful view of people. Now the 12, they've got more spiritual insight than ever before. But they too, they have a distorted view. They've got a distortive picture of what Jesus is doing spiritually. Their perception of what's going on, their perception of the kingdom of God, it is fuzzy, it is foggy, it is hazy. So key point number three for us. Jesus is giving the 12 a physical example of a spiritual reality. Jesus is giving the 12 a tangible example of a spiritual reality. So the 12 spiritually see Jesus like the blind man sees the 12. And that's not good. Verse 25, so again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes and then notice this, the man looked intently and then his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. So here we see another touch from Jesus. Now, once again, we don't know what this man's belief system is. We don't know how much faith he has. And there is a reason that Jesus took him away from the crowds. There's also another reason that Jesus did not heal him like the other people. Key point number four, Jesus wanted the man to have faith that matched the miracle. Jesus wants this man to have the faith that is going to match this miracle. I mean, is it possible that this man was dragged to Jesus, kicking and screaming? Have you ever brought someone to church by guilt? They finally came, but, you know, it was really against their will. They, they didn't do it for God. They, they just did to, to keep you quiet for a Sunday or two. So this man has faith, he's there, because if he didn't want to be there, he wouldn't have gone. So at some level he's he's got faith, he's got the faith of a mustard seed. All right. So key point number 5, this man had to cooperate with Jesus to be healed. This man in other words, he had to believe in Jesus to be healed. Scripture teaches us that it is the Father who draws people to His Son, and Scripture also teaches that people must respond in belief to that drawing. So, verse 25. So again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently, so he does something, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. We see Jesus touch this man again. We see the response of the man, and then he looks intently. So two things on this. From a spiritual perspective, we can say that he believed. He looked intently. He believes And then number two, Jesus also healed this man with 20-20 vision. So when he looks up, the the picture here in this verse is that this man can now see everything, even from a great distance. His vision is no longer blurry. He has 20-20 vision. Uh, He has impeccable vision. His physical healing was complete, just like the rest of of Jesus' miracles. And yet more importantly so was his soul. He is now right with God. He believed. So this man who was once blind, both physically and spiritually, he can now see. Key point number six for us, God also uses this process of illumination in your own life. God also uses this repeated touch In your own life, as you read the word of God by the spirit of God, he's going to reveal and illumine things that you've never seen. Even for those of you who have walked with the Lord 40 and 50 years, you open up the word of God and you go, man, I've read this thing how many times? And it's new. It's interesting that this man's healing comes in two stages. So we see it from failed sight to partial sight and then from partial sight to perfect sight. So this also illustrates the 12 disciples. It it illustrates the spiritual sight of the disciples. They go from not understanding to misunderstanding, and then from misunderstanding to perfect or complete understanding. Now, we're not there yet. We're going to get there. Verse 26, Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go to the village. So Jesus is, he's just telling this guy, look, go straight home. Um, Don't go into town because as he walks home, people are going to notice no one's helping him home. That's going to draw enough attention uh, to him. And Jesus doesn't need any more attention. He doesn't want any larger crowds. Verse 27, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So this is a a transition verse. So let me give you the big picture here. The rest of this narrative to verse 33, really, is called the watershed moment for the disciples. Verses 27 through 30, they're going to sum up the first half of Mark's gospel, the first eight chapters, because they focus in on Jesus' identity. And then verses 31 through 33, we'll get to that next week, that's going to set us up for the scene of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So verse 27 says that Jesus and the twelve leave Bethsaida, which is a Jewish city, and then they go to Caesarea Philippi, which is 25 miles north. So Caesarea Philippi is a Roman city. It's a Gentile city. It sits at the foot of Mount Hermon. It's a beautiful place. Caesarea Philippi was originally named Paneus after the Greek god Pan. Pan is a half goat, half man. Pan was known for his famous flute playing. So who knew that flute playing was a critical element to worshiping a false god? You ever heard of the pan flute? This is where it gets its name. So obviously this place, is uh, Caesarea Philippi, is dominated by paganism. Herod Philip, he inherits this territory from his father, Herod the Great. So what Philip did is he he remodeled this place, he enlarged the city, and he renamed the city after Caesar Augustus and himself. So Caesarea, that's another name for Caesar, and then Philippi after Philip. So the name of the city is literally Caesarea, the one of Philip. So that's where they are. They're in the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way there, Jesus says in verse 27, Who do people say that I am? So this is another test question. Last Sunday, we saw the 12 gave the correct answers, but they still failed the test here. And they failed the test because they were spiritually dull. They're spiritually slow, especially after the miraculous feeding of the Gentiles. So what about today? Jesus gave them just another lesson on blindness. Did they understand this lesson? So it's time for the final exam basically consists of two questions. Are you nervous? 50 points apiece. You better get this right. Pressure's on. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? So he's asking about human opinion. Jesus, he's not talking about religious leaders who want to kill him. He's talking about the crowds. Verse 28, so the the 12 answer Jesus so Peter chimes in, he says, well, John the Baptist for sure. And then Andrew, his brother says, well, that's, that's probably true, Pete, but you know, they, they also say that, that he's Elijah. And then John jumps in and he says, yeah, I've heard that too, but I've heard some people say that he's like one of the other prophets. He's like Jeremiah. So the crowds knew that Jesus had divine power, so they did consider him to be a prophet. But notice what's missing. Nobody said that he's the Messiah. And the reason for that is because they expected the Messiah to overthrow Rome. And since Jesus was not going to do that, the crowd did not consider him to be God's anointed. And really, unfortunately here, and this is really sad, is that they did not understand the Old Testament. They had a very distorted view of the Messiah. They were spiritually dull. They were spiritually um, blind, and really, the crowds—they were looking for a divine, docile, heavenly Superman who would fulfill their every desire and dream and wish. Truth be told, the disciples—they also wondered if Jesus was indeed the Messiah. You can, you, man, you can bank on that. They talked about this a lot because, like all first-century Jews, they—they they were raised. Just like the crowd, they expected the Messiah to come as a conquering king. Even John the baptizer had his doubts. In Matthew 11, verse 3, Are you the Messiah that we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Even John the baptizer had his own doubts. So everybody's starting to question this. Two years into this thing, the people's expectations are coming down. So now Jesus presses into his final exam question here. Jesus is not content with what others think of him. He doesn't really give a rip about Facebook posts or Gallup polls. He does care, though, what the 12 think. He does care what those closest to him believe. So in verse 29, he says, but what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Now, do you think it's a coincidence that Jesus asked the blind man, Do you see anything? And now Jesus is asking the disciples, those closest to him, Who do you say that I am? So Jesus could have asked this question this way. Do you guys see who I am? Have you seen the truth yet? (laughs) Or am I just still this dim, blurry, walking tree to you guys? See, up to this point, only God the Father, and ironically, demons, they recognize Jesus as the Messiah in the Gospel of Mark so far. The Gospel of Matthew gives us some more detail here. Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter answered, "You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God." So Peter is the spokesman for the 12, and it seems that the teaching lesson of this blind man, it did work. They did pass this final exam. So after more than two years of following Jesus, they worked through their, their doubts. They worked through their questions, they worked through their pain. So Jesus is not just the Son of God, and He is just, he's not just the Son of Man, but Jesus is the Christ. Definite article there. He is the Christ, the one and only. The term Messiah means the anointed one from God. So think about this with clarity and conviction now, without a shade of doubt, which is unusual for these guys, Peter proclaims Jesus. As the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the savior of the world. So, looking in your rear view mirror at the Gospel of Mark over the past eight chapters, we've seen this incredible journey um, of uh, a spiritual journey for the 12, haven't we? In Mark 1, verse 1, Mark told us that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. In John chapter 1, verse 41, Andrew went to his brother, Simon Peter, and he said, We found the Messiah. A few verses later, Nathanael says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And yet after those initial revelations, the disciples became confused about who Jesus truly was. See, their perception only changed temporarily the 12 had the same fundamental misunderstanding as the rest of Israel. So they did not understand God's eternal plan for salvation. They could not see that God's plan was going to take place in two phases, in two stages. And they were at the beginning of chapter 1, part 1. They they missed the, the part in the Old Testament where Isaiah told them that the Messiah is to be first, a suffering servant, Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. So at this point, we've got good news and we've got bad news. The good news is that Peter and the rest of the 12, they see Jesus as the Messiah. That's the really good news. The not so good news is that their vision of Jesus as the Messiah is like a walking tree. It's not perfect. It's not complete yet. So the 12 require a second touch by Jesus before they can, they can start seeing things with twenty twenty vision. For them to see the Messiah perfectly, it, it means that Jesus, he's got to tell them the plan. So they're sold on the person of Jesus Christ. But what we're going to find out next week is they're not sold on the plan. The Father's plan is that Jesus must suffer. He must die on a Roman cross he must be buried for 3 days he's going to walk out of his own grave he's going to conquer sin and death and then he's going to ascend back to the father that's the father's plan that's all next week but verse 30 Jesus strictly warned them to tell no one about him all right guys don't be don't be preaching this gospel yet i mean obviously they're excited Aren't you excited when the Lord reveals something to you that's that's brand new that you've never seen before? You want to go out and share that with people? Same thing here. They, they want to go out, but the problem is, is they've, they still have blurred vision here. So next week, Jesus is going to tell them the plan. And then secondly, Jesus, he's not really interested in, in political repercussions right now either with Rome. So once again, uh, if they did this that would just they would just broadcast false hopes and it would not be good so the big question before all of us today really is the same question that Jesus asked the 12 who do you say that I am is jesus god is he the image of the invisible god Do you believe that Jesus is before all things, and by him that all things hold together? Do you believe that he stepped down off his throne in heaven? I mean, think about this. The Lord God Almighty stepped down off his throne in heaven to become his own creation for the sole purpose of dying and suffering so that we could have a relationship with him. You can't can't make that up. I mean, when you die and you stand before a holy God, are you trusting in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ? Or are you going to trust in yourself and your good deeds and your personal integrity? I mean, really, this is the final exam question for us all, isn't it? It really is. Because the answer to this question is either heaven or a very real place called hell. And dear friends, uh, you know, eternity is just, it's way too long for you to be wrong on this. For those of you who have been walking with the Lord, are you continuing to experience a decreasing love for the world? In fact, are you experiencing a hatred for your old sin? And then are you starting to experience an increasing love for God, for Jesus, for the things that are holy, for, for the church? See, that's repentance, right? And I, I used to do all these things over here. I really like to do these things. And now I have no desire to do them anymore because I've met the one true living God. And you can't meet Jesus without being radically changed forever. And now I don't want anything to do with those things, and and I, I walk with him this way. I've turned 180 degrees. So in other words, how's your spiritual vision? So if you're a believer, you understand God's plan of salvation. It is through the cross. But do you also understand God's plan of sanctification? Sanctification, God sanctifying you. Do you understand that you have a role? You have a responsibility. You have a purpose within the body of Christ to make disciples. And then lastly, do you guys get the fact that most TV preachers and YouTube preachers are not preaching the gospel? Y'all get that? I've seen some stuff here lately. I, I told Amy the other day, I said, I woke up and I said, I've seen some stuff that makes me embarrassed to be a pastor. Because the world sees this stuff, and they go, I don't want any part of the church. I don't want any part of that. It it breaks my heart. Because when people come to the body of Christ, they need to be fed the word of God. They don't need a TED Talk. Right? So, what... I, I say that. I just I want you to be very careful to who you're listening to and watching. Um, because what they're what they're peddling is your happiness. If you're not happy, something's wrong. And and that is not the focus of your life as a child of God. The focus of your life, guys, is holiness. It is not happiness. And yet I say that, and I want you to know that when you focus on becoming holy, there is a joy that is supernatural, you will not find it in the world. If you have any questions about Jesus, the gospel, this message, there's a a prayer room through the foyer to the right. We would love to answer those questions and pray with you. So, Father, we want to thank you and praise you for this day that you've given to us. We certainly want to thank you and praise you for this watershed moment that you've given the twelve. And I pray that it's also a watershed moment for us, that you continue to teach us and guide us and and lead us, that we would indeed not only turn away from the stuff that we used to love, but we, we hate it. We hate our sin like you hate it. And it repulses us. It doesn't say we're perfect. You're very clear on that. But when we do make that decision to go back into the world and and when we do sin, that there's an an ongoing love for you, knowing that you're the only one that's going to satisfy this hole in our heart. Thank you for removing the scales from our eyes. Thank you for allowing us to see the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it's in your name I pray, amen.